from the kids to Aunt Sue. Keep your whole family connected on all their devices with crowd-pleasing gig-speed internet from Xfinity. Now that's simple, easy, awesome. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY or visit today. Restrictions apply. Actual speed vary and not guaranteed. Glad to have with us today Brian Rosenwald. Uh, Brian is a University of Pennsylvania historian and founding editor of the Washington Post Made by History section. He's also author of the new book, Holding in My Hand, Love the Black Cover and the Flames Coming Out of the Microphone, Talk Radio's America. It's uh, published by Harvard University Press this year. Now, the book chronicles the rise of conservative talk radio over three decades, puncturing misconceptions about this powerful new media colossus and exploring just what makes it tick. The book reveals that talk radio not only transformed the Republican Party, pulling it hard to the right and turning compromise into a dirty word, but also reshaped the media landscape itself. In the process, this new medium fueled polarization and gridlock and created a political area in which a president like Donald Trump was possible. More than a pleasure to have Brian Rosenwald with us, author of this great new book, Talk Radio's America, How an Industry Took Over a Political Party That Took Over the United States. Brian, good afternoon. Welcome. Leslie, it's great to be with you. And it's good to have you with us. Brian, I am a liberal radio talk show host, and I have been for over 30 years, and you wrote this book for me and you didn't know it. And the reason (laughs) I say that is um, I, as a liberal talk show host, um, have been, in a sense, a casualty, as many of us on the left have, um, of this rise of conservative talk radio that took place over three decades. Um, and, and so your book is right on. Uh, but first, why did you decide to write it now and why about this topic? Because this has been going on for a long time and conservatives like to poo-poo the idea that it has. Well, I actually came to this by accident. I needed one more research class in my last year of classes at graduate, in graduate school, and I was looking at something tied to polarization, and all the uh, 20th century American historians at the University of Virginia went on leave at once. And I said to my advisor, well, what do I do? And he said, go out to the law school and take the legal history seminar. And he mentioned the fairness doctrine to me. He said, you know, you look at the legal roots of polarization. He said, the fairness doctrine goes away, and I swear the next day we got Rush Limbaugh. And it took about two weeks to realize that it was a much more complicated story than that, and I've spent the next nine years kind of digging at it and working at it, and the funny thing is, if you had asked me when I started this research in 2010 and said, you know, by the time you finish this book, the President of the United States is going to be Donald Trump, I'd have just laughed at you, and yet when the election happened in 2016, and I sat down the next day, I said, well, I've got to write a chapter on this, what's it going to say, it was a very quick realization that this is the logical endpoint of this story. We're going to take a break and we're going to come back to you, Brian. That's our short segment. Don't go away. I want to talk more about this book, Talk Radio's America, how an industry took over a political party that took over the United States. Brian Rosenwald is our guest. I'm Leslie Marshall. Back to you and him right after this. back with Brian Rosenwald, author of Talk Radio's America, How an Industry Took Over a Political Party That Took Over the United States. Uh, Brian, back in the day, because I've been doing this over 30 years, there was something called the Fairness Doctrine. And the Fairness Doctrine ensured that people in this country were truly getting fair and balanced information. Uh, the Fairness Doctrine had all sides. You would get your female side, your minority side, but uh, politically and very importantly, you would get a left side and a right side, even if more of it was on the right. You still had somebody like me out there. But after the Fairness Doctrine, that all changed. I want to tell you a quick story, Brian, and, and then I would like you to, to talk about this. Years ago, 
I had somebody ask me before I was defined politically for myself. I was an independent, a boss uh, that said to me, not a boss, actually somebody who was interviewing me for a job, but he he sort of was um, stuck hiring this big name in the city. But he said to me, you know, what do you consider yourself as an independent? He said, independent sit on the fence. You have to decide one way or the other. And I said, well, policy-wise, I lean more left. He goes, pick a side. The time is coming where you will have to pick a side. Maybe he had a crystal ball and saw what was coming, but there there was a definite shift and divide in this nation on talk radio, wasn't there, Brian? Didn't you find that in your research? Absolutely. Now, the, the fairness doctrine is something that's misunderstood by a lot of people. It would not have meant that the rise of conservative talk radio didn't happen. In fact, Rush Limbaugh broadcast his show on KFBK in Sacramento, same basic show except it was locally based, from 1984 to 1987 under the fairness doctrine. But there was a liberal somewhere on that station. What would have been impossible is today's kind of all-conservative station. Where you Enid Goldstein. Sorry, Brian. Enid Goldstein was that liberal because I used to fill in for her when I was in between jobs. Go ahead, Brian. Continue. Well, there you go. See, that? I learned something new. Um, and then when he went to New York, it was Lynn Samuels who was sort of given the, the left perspective um, on his station. But what would be impossible is today's all-conservative station, where you wake up with a local conservative morning host, then you get somebody syndicated usually in, from 9 to noon, Rush, Hannity, Mark Levin, and then somebody else from 9 to midnight. And it's all conservative all the time. That would not have been legally possible because the Fairness Doctrine required overall balance in the programming when you were discussing controversial issues. And what you say about that kind of moment to choose is absolutely right. I'll give a, you a couple examples. Um, Alan Combs was number one in his market in some places at night in the early 90s, and he got fired. Why? Because a lot of executives started to decide that all conservative was better branding, that all conservative was going to give them higher advertising rates because the same audience, what, what people in the business call P1s, their, their main audience, would stick around. And even if he was building a big audience at night, they couldn't use his show as well to hype the conservative morning show the next morning because it was a different audience. And they wanted what they call format purity, which is essentially that if you listen to a country music station, you're not going to hear Beethoven. And they applied that idiom to talk. And there was another guy um, by the name of Tom Likas, who is now doing his own radio operation, but for a long time, he started out uh, KFI in L.A. with Rush Limbaugh, um, where he was the liberal in the afternoon after Rush was morning conservative. And Tom Likas moved away from political talk because st- what he started to hear as he headed towards syndication was – you're going to have to pick a side, and, and conservatism is what sells. That's what they were, they were saying. You know, Limbaugh had taken off, and they were putting people like G. Gordon Liddy and Michael Reagan in national syndication. And they, you know, people said, well, there's not going to be a lot of room for you guys on the left in, in, on these stations. And so he said, okay, I'm done with politics. Oh, I remember that. And he did a very, very uh, fraternity uh crass, you know, show me your boobs yep. kind of show, no joke in L.A. That became number one as well. I know Tom very well. I've had lunch with Tom. Uh, he actually is a, a very intelligent and uh, brilliant uh, talk radio host, whether you like him or not or like what he had to say. Um, I had a boss who's still in the business, so I won't mention his name. He was in Chicago at the time. He's here in L.A. now. And he told me once behind closed doors, can't you become a conservative you know what they're going to say you could be a conservative i said well i could but i'd be lying why he goes you're going to get a lot more work that way and this was long before i did television 
um, yeah. and with regard to radio, it would have been right. Brian, I'm wondering, because to be uh, a full, a full uh, disclosure, I got your book this morning, so I've only been able to start it. I haven't read the whole thing, and I don't lie like some people do and pretend they've you know read everything they interview. Um, in your book, do you happen to go into how not only did the right dominate the market, but they dominated the, the biggest signal on the dial, pushing liberals uh, to, to, to places on the dial you couldn't hear. And I say that because when Air America came up and failed, there was this misperception that if you're a liberal talk show host, you can't succeed. You have to be a conservative to succeed, that people don't want to hear liberal talk show host. Alan Combs, a very good friend of mine for years, and I worked alongside him uh, at Daynet on the ABC satellite uh, radio network, um, and uh, as well as Fox uh, on TV. And, uh, you know, some of the other people that, you know, you have mentioned, I, I know and have worked with, uh, you know, whether on the station or, you know, just, you know, on a panel uh, throughout the years. But that was one thing that we would notice was, you know, the Sean Hannity's and uh, the, uh, you know, at the time, the G. Gordon Liddy's and certainly the Rush Limbaugh's, they'd have 50,000 watts and we had like 1,500. We didn't have the reach that they had. We also didn't have the money that they had that was being poured into talk radio uh, to uh, push uh, conservative uh, ideas and uh, to, to fund those talk programs. There are a lot of reasons why liberal talk has not been more successful. I, we, we could probably do two hours just on that topic. But you're absolutely right that the bar was higher. By the time they start trying things like Air America in the early 2000s, the bar to success was really high because those top stations, you'd have one company-owned cluster of stations in a city. And those stations, they're, they're going to naturally, it's, you know, it's a business, they're going to sink the most promotional dollars into their top station, that 50,000-watt station. And that was usually conservative talk. Well, it's very hard then when you're not getting promoted for people to find you on that really high dial, low wattage station, and it doesn't sound as good, and it cuts out. And so there was a huge bar to jump over. Now, I think if Air America had been better run and there had been, you know, hosts had hit their strides earlier, that, that whole thing was a mess, and it sent the wrong message to the business. But the bar was much higher for those folks, because even, you know, Rush, one answer is, well, Rush started on a lot of small suburban stations in the early days, and look what, where he got. But Rush, first of all, is enormously talented, and he also was in a moment where there was much more flux in radio, where those 50,000-watt stations, eventually, there were availabilities there. For the best liberal talkers by, you know, even 20 years ago, that opening didn't exist because the top-rated station in the market was branded conservative talk. There was no room for them. And you're right about you know ideological conversions. There are a lot of folks who had ideological conversions, you know, who, who were liberal in the 80s, who all of a sudden sort of conveniently found the, the, saw the light. Um, and, and moved rightward, uh, you know, in a lot of markets because they understood that that was the key to having a future. Now, today, you've had the rise of a lot of liberal podcasts and things, and so I think that as as media moves away from the AM stick, as the delivery mechanism for this kind of content diversifies, I think you're going to see a lot more ideological diversity. But it, it, for a lot of years, that was a bar that had to be crossed. You talk about how Donald Trump came about, if you will, uh, for, you know, after years and years of talk radio. And, and, and I would agree with you, Brian. When I look at one race in particular, Eric Cantor, um, who was a career politician in the state of Virginia, Laura Ingram 
backed a no-name Tea Party candidate, and he was unseated by that candidate. So these talk shows, especially on the right, have enormous influence um, over uh, political elections, and, and you believe they did, and that played into the success and uh, eventual presidency of Donald Trump uh, in 2016, correct? Yeah, I mean, uh, two separate things there, since you brought up primaries. Eric Cantor is maybe not the best example we can use just because Eric Cantor wasn't doing a lot of constituent services and things like that. But it was critically important because Laura Ingram and Mark Levin and people like that said, we beat Eric Cantor. They said, we, we did this. The primaries are where hosts have the most influence because, first of all, people can't vote on a party label. The general election, you look for your, you know, your team, so to speak. You, you look for the R, you look for the D. You can't do that in a primary. And what it's done is it's caused the Republican Party to lurch far right because a lot of folks are worried as we go into red states, blue states, you have a lot of people where the most important election is the primary. And in those primaries, if they're not pure, if they're not willing to turn politics into warfare, if they dare to say, hey, compromise is not a bad thing, well, the insurgent primary challenger can run against them. And somebody can go on the airwaves and beat the living snot out of them, can say, hey, this, this challenger who you've never heard of, this person is good people. They can bring them on. They can help them raise money. They can call the Congress, local congressman a rhino, Republican in name only. Now, Donald Trump, he's benefited in other ways. You know, if you listen to Donald Trump, instead of sounding like a president like you know Barack Obama or even George W. Bush, he sounds a lot like what you hear on the airwaves. He t- took the talk radio playbook and applied it to running for office. He sounds like a host. Hosts have spent decades lamenting, saying, you know, the Republicans, they're not fighting for you. They make all these promises on the campaign trail, and they never deliver for you. And Donald Trump, all of a sudden, he sounded like the favorite host. When somebody would say, well, you can't say this, Donald. You can't, you can't criticize John McCain. You can't do that. You know, you're done. He would just punch back instead of going away, instead of going into some sort of defensive crouch. And if you listen to what a lot of his fans said, it sounds eerily like what they said when Rush Limbaugh first goes national in the late 80s. They would say, thank God you're here, Rush. We finally have a voice. And with Donald Trump, they'd say, finally, somebody to fight for us. And he used that playbook. And so, well, well, a lot of this got, can, you know, misread the primary a little bit in 2016. We were looking at ideology. We were looking at the fact, well, he's not really a conservative from an ideological perspective. But what we were missing was his style fit what so many Republican primary voters were used to. And they also beat the crap out of the mainstream media every day. You know, decades of pounding on the mainstream media. So what did that mean in 2016? Well, when the media would say, well, you know, Donald Trump did this unsavory business thing, um, or Donald Trump mistreated women, or Donald Trump, you know, did this or that or the other thing, a lot of his fans said, well, that, that's just the mainstream media trying to elect Hillary. You know, we, we can't trust them. They're not, you know, there's no facts. That's not to say there isn't media bias, but what happened was the media basically became completely delegitimized in the eyes of most conservative talk radio listeners. You know, wow, there's just so much with this. Um, You you wrote that Trump has conducted the talk radio presidency. Can you speak to that? Because I find that very interesting. Well, again, he sounds like a host. Those moments when presidents traditionally try to conciliate, they try to bring us together. He doesn't do any of that. He just tweets things that sound like they were ripped out of Sean Hannity's mouth, you know, and he's being advised. We hear, we've seen stories about Sean Hannity's advising him, or last winter, government shutdown. They think they have a deal. They 
he signed off. Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell think he signed off. Well, he starts getting beat up in conservative media. And the next day, what does he do? He texts or he lets Rush know somehow, I'm not going to do this. We're, we're not going to have a deal. If they won't give me my wall money, I'm shutting the government down. And there was no way, Leslie, that he could have won that fight, that he was going to get his wall money at the end. But he went down this path because that's what his base, that's what talk radio demanded. And he's, you know, he play, he's played golf with Rush. There have been rumors that, that uh, at least on one of his overseas trips, he had Tucker Carlson advising him on things. It's these media personalities are sort of his kitchen cabinet, and he sounds like them. He talks like them. He's watching their shows. You know, we, we see him. There, there was one tweet at the end of July where he wasn't even going to be on Hannity that night, but he was mad about something else on Fox, and he said like something like, well, at least we still got Sean Hannity tonight at 9 o'clock. I hear he's got a great show coming up. You know, it, 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 we've never seen this from a president. Uh, no, we, we, we haven't. Um, with, with with regard to uh, the industry, um, you know, the president, conservative talk radio, um, they're on the same page. You know, you spoke to that um, in two decades. Talk radio really hasn't changed much on many issues, abortion, capital punishment and the new one, immigration. Can you speak to that? Immigration is the issue where talk radio has had the most impact. Talk radio helped bring down multiple bipartisan immigration bills under both President Bush and President Obama, where they just absolutely pilloried the bills. They made it out you know, to be the death of America. This is going to destroy America. It's going to destroy American values. It's going to destroy the Republican Party. Call your congressman. Call your senator. And they helped bring down a bill in 2007. And another one, another effort, it wasn't a one bill, in 2014, um, 2013-2014. This is the issue they've pounded on for absolutely for two decades. And it's the issue where they've had the most impact. And it's the issue, honestly, where Donald Trump sounds the most like a conservative host. Because one reason that he doesn't want to even entertain compromise on this issue is he knows his base is going to go crazy. Well, his base has been listening to this. His base has been fueling this. You know, a lot of hosts, I don't want to make it sound like hosts are leading their, their listeners around like puppets. They are reflecting the sentiments that they're hearing from their callers in a lot of cases and that they're sort of sensing in their audiences. And it's sort of a mutually reinforcing cycle. And this is the issue, I mean, where you talk to people in the GOP, senators, congressmen who are involved in these efforts, they were trying. They were reaching out to hosts. They were going on these shows. And, you know, even folks in the Bush White House told me about the 2007 effort. They said, you know, we'd go on, and it was like being a pinata. They, they were just absolutely you know, knocking our teeth in over this stuff, and it didn't matter what we said. It didn't matter what was in the bill. They said amnesty, 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 and that was the, the kind of buzzword, and they've created our polarized climate or fueled our polarized climate on immigration that has made it impossible to find some compromise, even though, ironically, it's the issue where Republicans and Democrats in, in Congress seem to, for at least a while, find common ground. Uh, Brian, just want to thank you for being with us. Uh, you are awesome. Um, where can folks get your book? They can get my book at Amazon, at Barnes & Noble, or just about anywhere where books are sold. I love it. I'm going to continue reading it. Brian's websites are brianrosenwald.com. That's B-R-I-A-N-R-O-S-E-N-W-A-L-D.com. Or you can go to washingtonpost.com forward slash news forward slash made hyphen by hyphen history. 
His Twitter handle is at Brian Ross one, B-R-I-A-N-R-O-S, the number one. 